All right. Awesome, awesome. Choir's a little thin this morning, but uh, you couldn't tell by listening. Uh, over the course of, the, of this past week, as uh, I looked to see who was going to be here for the choir, who was available for the band, as I uh, recruited people to do different things, as we looked at who was available for uh, worship this morning and helping lead in a variety of ways, it came to my attention that a lot of people that I talked to were going to be out of town today, out of town this weekend, uh, not able to be here for worship this morning. And I was sharing this with Stephen as we were doing a little planning late in the week, and he suggested to me that uh, we were going to be a little thin this morning because the word had gotten out that I was speaking this morning about giving. (laughs) Of course, I know that a number of people today are traveling because they're celebrating Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day, as the case may be. It's the first uh, weekend of fall break for many of the elementary and middle schools around us. Still, uh, it's true that many of us don't count the subject of giving among our favorite topics, there are other things that we would far more like to hear about. Jesus talked more about money, however, than he did any other subject except the kingdom of God. Of all of Jesus' parables, most of them, the majority of them, have something to do with a person and their money, as it turns out. For Jesus Money was very much a spiritual commodity, and the giving of one's money was a part of that whole conversation or enterprise. So if we want to talk about the way of Jesus, which we've been doing for the last few weeks in this series, and we'll continue to do so, it's inevitable that we talk about giving. There's no way around that. And so now at the risk of being redundant for those who have been around the last few weeks, for the sake of those of you who may not or who are new with us this morning, here is the idea in this series that we're calling The Way of Jesus. The idea is that Jesus called people to follow him. He did. He called men and women over and over at the beginning of his ministry and throughout to follow him. And Jesus was a rabbi, and when he said, follow me, he didn't just mean, hey, go to Nazareth, go to Bethlehem, go to Bethany, where I am going, but rather become my students, become my disciples, become my apprentices, become like me, follow me and become like me, learn to walk in my way. Jesus invited people not only to take his name, Christian, but more importantly to learn from him how to do life and how to do life in and according to what he called the kingdom of God or the present reality in which the will of God is done, in which what God commands is actually obeyed, in which what God desires is realized. In a life that Jesus declared would be defined by abundance and eternalness. Are you with me on this? All right. Much of the church and many of us have held to an idea that Jesus' mission was and is simply to die in our place on a cross 
so that our sins might be forgiven by God and so that our place in heaven might be secured when we die one day, period. And once we accept that proposition, our job is largely to enjoy life on our own terms as long as we can until that day comes with Jesus as our ever-present and always-approving mascot. And some of that is true. Jesus was, as John wrote, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Absolutely. But the three years of Jesus' public ministry, they count. The three years leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, the cross, they count. And they were about Jesus teaching his students and modeling for his apprentices a whole different way of living in the presence and in the power and in the grace of God. In other words, the kingdom of God. Today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and for the rest of our lives on earth until we pass away. All for the glory of God. And the reality is that most of us though are drawn to a different way. We resist the way of Jesus regularly because it is against our nature, because it is countercultural, because it requires a little more trust than we often feel like we can muster. Consciously or unconsciously, we either want a different way or think we know a better way of living for life. Are you still with me? It's gotten really quiet. So uh, let's get in turn to the words of Jesus uh, as Savior and Lord, as Rabbi and Master. But first again, let me pray. God, help us to be attentive, not to my words, but to your word. Not to what we have known, but what you would have us know. Uh, give us hearts that are ready to receive your word for us. Eyes that can see, ears that are good to hear. Uh, grow in us things that bring you pleasure and delight and glory and that bring us joy. We ask and pray in Jesus. Amen. So, uh, reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, beginning at verse 1, and what uh, a part of Jesus' teaching in Matthew that's been known as the Sermon on the Mount. Listen closely. This is the Word of God. Chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And Jesus starts with a warning. Be careful. Be really careful not to practice your righteousness or your acts of righteousness. And righteousness is very much for the Hebrew. We don't hear it, but it was very much for the Jewish listener, a technical term that referred to this entire body of laws and rules and things that they were supposed to do in order to please God. All of their works were summed up in the word righteousness, sadiq in Hebrew. Your acts of righteousness, your righteousness. Be careful not to practice your acts of righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, 
you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And clearly Jesus is not opposed to righteousness, sadiq, acts of righteousness. Jesus was not opposed to, to Jews or specifically to his followers, uh, all of whom were Jews at that point, following the law as they followed him. Absolutely not. In fact, Jesus wants his disciples to follow the law, to do these things. Jesus encouraged his disciples to do what was good and what was right. And he names three such things right here and in the next two passages that we'll cover the next two Sunday mornings. Jesus expects that his disciples, he expects, it's a given, that his disciples will give to the needy in their midst. But there was a way Jesus taught them to do this, which we'll talk about in a moment. But first I want to talk about the matter of giving itself. The Greek word Jesus uses here was for centuries translated in English almsgiving or giving alms. We don't use that word or that phrase very often anymore. But it refers back to an act of mercy. It has in mind the poor. It has in mind specifically those in need. It has in mind those who for whatever reason are unable to provide for themselves. Give to them. Provide for them. Have mercy on them. As God has had mercy on you, have mercy on them. As Jesus says elsewhere, be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. Be like God. Follow in the steps of Jesus, who was God incarnate. Become like Jesus. And all of this is what Jesus means when he says, follow me. Walk in my way. Become like God, who has had mercy on you and who has mercy on people. It's the prayer that Jesus, that God always answers and that Jesus always answered. Walk in his way. We are to give because we have been given to, and we are to give as we have been given to. Such is God's means of caring for the poor in the world. How else are the poor going to be cared for? Of exhibiting God's righteousness, a word that almost anywhere it occurs in the Old Testament or New Testament can also be translated justice. And sometimes it is translated justice. Righteousness, justice. People seeking to follow Jesus or to live in his way will give to people in need. And the question that each of us must answer and that some of us would rather not even attend to then becomes how much? We may choose to ignore this question, but ignoring the question is simply one way of answering the question. For some people, giving one-tenth of one's income, also known in the Bible as a tithe, is a goal, something to be sought after, something to be pursued. It is a goal or a ceiling to be reached. For other people, for other Christians, giving away 10% of one's income may be a floor or a starting point from which they will go up. For whatever it's worth, here are some statistics about Christians and giving in the United States 
today among our peers, only one in 20, in other words, 5% of American Christians tithe. In other words, give 10% of their income to the church. 16 of 20, in other words, 80% of American Christians give 2% of their income. On average, Christians give 2.5% of their income. During the Great Depression, that number was 3.3%. For families making $75,000 or more a year, only 1% of them tithe. The average giving by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 a week. About three cups of Starbucks. 37% of regular church attendees and self-professed evangelicals don't give any money to their church. But then there's also this statistic. 77% of those who do tithe give not just 10%, sort of a straight off the top 10%, but give 11 to 22%, another category in that survey, and some even more which reflects something that the great 5th century church father Augustine said in Echoing Jesus. Where your pleasure is, there is your treasure. And where your treasure is, there is your heart. And where your heart is, there is your happiness. How much is a follower of or an apprentice of Jesus to give? I know it's so quiet in here, it's painful for me. How much is a follower, someone who seeks to walk in the way of Jesus, to give? It's a difficult question. It's not unrelated to its cousin. How much money is enough to have or to gain or to keep? How much will it take to make me happy or to be secure? How much is enough in this regard? How much do I have to save or put aside? How much do I get to spend? These are all hard questions. In his classic book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those in the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not all at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Mother Teresa said so bluntly that I'm reluctant to to quote her, but she said, if you give what you do not need, it isn't giving. Which admittedly causes some of us to recoil so much that we cannot even hear her point. Another way to answer the question might be to give until the poor in our midst are provided for. Though Jesus did say you will always have the poor with you. Another way to answer this question might be or address this question is to give until you are free. To give until we are no longer slaves to money. To give until our money no longer controls us but we control it. Another way to answer the question might be to give until the poor in our midst are provided for. Another way to answer the question is to give until we are free. 
To give until we are no longer slaves to money. To give until our money doesn't control us, but we control it. Or to give, on the other hand, until we find joy in such. To give until we have discovered the joy of the Lord in blessing others. And that joy outweighs our fears and our greed. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, duty, obligation, reluctance. For God loves a cheerful giver. God delights in the person who gives with joy, who has been liberated from greed and worry and fear and is able to give with joy. A mother wanted to teach her daughter a a lesson about giving, so on the way to church one Sunday morning, she gave the little girl a quarter and a dollar and said, put whichever one you want in the collection basket when it comes around, and keep the other for yourself. When they were exiting the sanctuary that morning after worship, the mother asked her daughter, which, the quarter or the dollar, did you put in the basket this morning? Well, said the little girl, I was going to give the dollar. But just before the ushers began passing the baskets, the man up on the platform said, we should all be cheerful givers. And I knew that I'd be a lot more cheerful if I gave the quarter. So I did. I think many of us have probably been in that place. God's will is not that our cheer or our joy be decreased by reluctant giving, but that it be increased by generous giving. Generosity, one of our values as a church. And what goes along with that is joy. Our giving is not to be coerced or reluctant or under compulsion. Our giving is not to be out of guilt or duty. And God's will is not that we give until we are poor, which is possible. But we are called to live in some sort of solidarity with the poor, as Jesus did. The poor of San Mateo County, the poor of the world, and especially with those who are in Christ. To know the poor, to associate with the poor, and to care with the poor, again, as Jesus did in whose steps we are are attempting to walk. And as we do, I trust God will move us along toward what the Bible calls salvation. As our minds are opened and as our hearts are enlarged and as God's love flows through us and as the generosity of God bursts forth from us, of course we are not saved by our works. I can hear the recording in some of our heads going off. Yes, but we're not supposed to be saved by works. We're not. And yet we experience God's kingdom in and through our obedience and through trusting Jesus enough to walk in his way. It was only after the awakened and repentant and seemingly now generous Zacchaeus gave half of all his possessions to the poor that Jesus declares, today salvation has come to this house. Oh. Walking in the way of Jesus involves giving, and it particularly involves giving to the poor. And then there's a way in which Jesus taught his disciples to give before an audience of one, as John spoke about last week, as kind of a sort of prelude to this Sunday and the next two Sundays. And this living before an audience of one seemed to be just as important to Jesus as the act of giving itself. Because Jesus was not only interested in the giving of money or the doing of righteousness and good deeds for the poor, but also just as much the purifying of a person's heart, a person's heart coming into sync with the heart of God. 
And the human heart, though, is always ripe for corruption. So be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them, Jesus said. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. There is this inherent reward, this inherent blessing or joy or privilege, this high or a thrill when one gives to the poor or does a good deed, absolutely. Jesus affirms that. But there is another reward that comes from our Father in heaven that Jesus talks about. And to be rewarded by one's Father in heaven, Jesus says, put down the trumpets. We don't really know if the teachers of the law and the righteous and the Pharisees, if they really literally got out trumpets or someone else blew a trumpet when they went up in the temple to put their coins, their money, their resources into the collection vessel. They may have, or Jesus may have just been being funny. But Jesus says, put down the trumpets, put away the fireworks, turn off the music, turn down the lights, don't post it on Facebook or Instagram, keep your good works to yourself, and learn to be content in that. We've gotten to a place in our world with social media that it's almost as if the things that are not posted on Facebook or Instagram aren't really real. They didn't really happen. They don't really count if we can't tell everyone who will listen, watch, or read about them. We don't have to boast, though, Jesus says. Instead, we choose to post. It's our way of can be. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus said. And you know, the number one reason people stay away from the church and stay away from Christianity and stay away from Christians is because they say hypocrisy, right or wrong. Don't be like the hypocrites, Jesus said. It's a word that came from the theater. Beware of becoming an actor. Beware of becoming a pretender. Beware of becoming a show-off. Put an end to the public performance. When we go to the theater, a person is supposed, we know, we understand, they are supposed to be acting, pretending. But not in real life, Jesus says. Get off the stage. It's not good for your soul. We love applause. I love applause, sort of directly or indirectly, out loud or quietly. Jesus says, let your giving be for an audience of one, and then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will, will, will reward you. And at least part of the way in which he will reward you, us, is by molding us and shaping us into the sort of mature, confident, secure, and humble person who experiences remarkable peace because she knows that she is right in the center of the will of a God who loves her dearly, prodigiously, relentlessly, endlessly. And that is enough. And that is where we are supposed to be and where we are called to rest. It is more than enough if we can bring ourselves, allow ourselves in God's grace to only be in that place and to not boast about whatever good thing we might do. God desires to get us to that place, Jesus says, where our egos no longer need or depend on our own applause. In other words, the watching of our left hand, what our right hand, our giving hand is doing. Jesus says, don't even let yourself know as much as you can the good things that you do. You don't need to do that. Try to be free from that. In our human depravity, we're always inclined to turn an act of mercy into an act of vanity. 
One's principal motive in giving can become not the benefit of a person who is in need, but rather the stroking of our own ego. Altruism is replaced by a distorted egotism. And so, because Jesus has such good in mind for us, not simply outwardly, but more importantly, inwardly, he warns his apprentices about such. We love seeing our names on donors' lists in alumni magazines, and on the websites of our favorite charities, ministries. There's a reason that we don't do that in the church. But Jesus says, do not continually recall your giving or gloat over such. Do not continue to preen over your generosity or to congratulate yourself. Learn to live apart from that. This is part of Jesus training his disciples to be pure in heart, to live like he lived, to be in a better place, to be dependent wholly on their father for their affirmation and love and who they are. To such a place Jesus calls us, and I'm not pretending that it's easy. It's not easy. It's not easy for me We all love attention. We all love applause. We all love our good works to be recognized. It's human nature. And it's not a terrible thing. But Jesus calls us to a different and better and more lovely place if we can get there by his grace. I'm going to quote again uh, Henry Nouwen, which I quoted a couple of times a couple of weeks ago, just to remind us about this curriculum to which we are called. And this way, this life to which Jesus calls us. Now in writes, the way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the end of the line, staying behind the sets or the scenes, and choosing the last place. Why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way, it is the way to the kingdom. The way that Jesus himself took and the way that brings everlasting life. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for caring enough to show us the way. Uh, The way for this life, the way of eternal life, the way to eternal life. Thank you for loving us enough to not allow us to continue to wander aimlessly alone in our own wisdom through this sometimes difficult life. We acknowledge that we have chosen our own way. We all, like sheep, have chosen our own way and gone astray, as Isaiah wrote. Thank you for your mercy toward us. Help us to be equally merciful toward other people toward those like us, toward the poor, toward the hurting, toward the broken in our midst. Restore to us, God, give to us the joy of your salvation, the joy of freedom, the joy of your kingdom, and the joy of grace. And in that, may your people exhibit the joy of you, our Lord, and may you be pleased, and may you be glorified. We pray these things in the name of our master. Amen.
And Jesus, our master, our teacher, our rabbi, invites us to this table, to his table. And not, it's not because we're good. It's not based on our acts of righteousness, our sadiq, but on his righteousness and his obedience and his faithfulness and his love by which he took the hit that was rightly ours. Stepping onto the platform, the stage, to be nailed to a cross so that he might be, as the scriptures say, as John wrote, an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that we might be reconciled to God, our Father. And so this invitation uh, isn't for the good. It's not for those who have mastered love. It's not for the righteous. But it's for us, all of us. You don't have to be a member of this church or a Presbyterian church or any church to participate, but only acknowledge your need for God's grace and your desire to rely on him for that. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said to his disciples, this is my body that's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took a cup, and he said, this cup is a new covenant, promise, agreement, in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So drink ye all of it. Go ahead, drink. And the Apostle Paul says that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup in this manner together, we proclaim the Lord's atoning death for our sin on a cross until he comes again, and he will. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. For your mercy exhibited, demonstrated, and given in this table, God, we thank you. We ask that you would meet us as we eat and drink together, that you would open our eyes, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would unite us in one as your family on earth, and that you would unite us to yourself through your son who has healed our wounds and drawn us into your life. Help us to see as we eat and to see as we drink, and to be renewed in your spirit. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen.